Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is ADH-TV, I'm David Flint. The program is Save the Nation, produced by Charlie Noble. And my guest today is known to viewers, Xavier Boffer, who's the executive director of the Samuel Griffith Society, Australia's Federalist Society. And uh, Xavier, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Professor Flint. It's great to be back on the show. Very good. And you've just had a, a very busy period, have you not, with uh, one of your very great national conferences, which I believe was enormously successful, not only in terms of the people attending, but in terms of the youth of a large number of the people attending. And you've had some very impressive speakers and uh, you haven't rested with that. Could you tell me about the conference and about what you're doing now? Yes, well, thank you, Professor. Uh, it was certainly an excellent conference uh, last month in Melbourne. We were very sorry that uh, you weren't able to join us, um, but it was, uh, as you say, it was a, a record attendance for the society and uh, we're particularly pleased by the attendance of young people this year. We had, uh, for the first time ever, uh, about 100 uh, young law students and young lawyers and other university students, many of whom attended on scholarships and made up about a third of the conference attendees at the conference. And it was very encouraging. And, and one of the things that um, I greatly enjoyed about the conference uh, was seeing on uh, Friday evening at our uh, dinner to open the conference with uh, John Anderson, uh, just how many of these young Australians, these young uh, students and young lawyers um, were so inspired by his contribution, his speech, and then by the opportunity to interact with him um, afterwards. And, and we, um, we, and it's on our social media, we had a photo uh, taken with many of the students at that dinner um, with John Anderson. And uh, it was uh, so inspiring and so encouraging to see that next generation stepping forward. Uh, but also so interesting to see how many of them uh, 
were saying that they listened to John Anderson's podcast, that they were inspired by um, his contribution to public service, uh, that they were grateful for the opportunity to uh, glean some wisdom from him and from the other speakers over the conference weekend. So that was a highlight for me. And you've already published uh, some things flowing from the conference, have you not? That's right. Well, the focus of this year's conference has understandably been the voice, uh, given that it's the topic du jour and also the most significant proposed change to our constitution, certainly uh, in uh, this, uh, this century uh, and arguably uh, in, in my lifetime, although the, the Republic issue uh, being also quite a significant threat to the constitutional proposed change. But, you know, for us, we haven't wanted to rest uh, on our laurels with the conference. There were a number of papers which, which I think make a significant contribution to the ongoing debate around the referendum proposal. And so for that reason, we wanted to make sure that those uh, papers were available to the public as quickly as possible. And so a number of those papers, the majority, in fact, have already been published electronically on our website. Uh, the speeches from the conference have been broadcast uh, online as well. And, um, and shortly after uh, this interview uh, will be made available on the Society's website and YouTube channel as well. So those are a resource which I think will be very valuable for Australians as they are considering how to vote in the upcoming referendum next month. And uh, there are a number of, of papers there which I think make a significant contribution to the debate. One of them being the paper given by Dr David Kemp, uh, who has got to be one of the uh, most well-informed and intellectual contributors on the subject of Australian history, who we were very privileged to hear give his first public comments on The Voice uh, at our conference, uh, at our Saturday dinner, uh, and who made some very compelling arguments, I think, uh, for his position on the referendum, which is a no position. And uh, the great thing about Dr Kemp's contribution is that it is grounded in the work that he has done in producing that great five-volume history of Australia uh, that he has published over the, the last few years. And so it's incredibly well-informed and very articulate. And so I would encourage people as they are thinking about the voice proposal and the upcoming referendum uh, to go to uh, papers such as his that are available uh, on the Society's website and, uh, and other social media platforms. Certainly David Kemp is a major contributor to Australian history, particularly Australian political and constitutional history and his books are a great resource, so that his contribution there must have been really significant. But you didn't limit yourself to one side, did you? You did have uh, uh, speakers uh, who were less inclined to condemn the voice. Well, that's right. And from the outset in convening this conference, the first uh, conference of the society that I've had the pleasure of convening, I wanted to make sure that uh, it was a true forum for discussion and debate around issues on all sides of the voice. And so we did have uh, uh, Dr Scott Stevenson from Melbourne Law School present a different perspective at the conference. Uh, he was arguing in favour of the voice and, and arguing that it is, a, a, I suppose, a constitutionally conservative, to use his um, phrase, uh, proposal uh, with fairly limited 
implications or effect. Now, that, that's not a view that I personally share, but it was excellent to have that alternative viewpoint expressed at the conference. And there was some very good engagement uh, following his paper in the Q&A discussion. And it was very good to see him engage with other leading academics and politicians who were in the audience. Um, and that discussion uh, is also available. So this year, for the first time, we've made uh, the Q&A discussions uh, available as well, um, so that that also can inform people as they are making their decisions. But but I do want to say in terms of debate about the voice, uh, some people uh, may be aware that um, Professor Gabrielle Appleby, who's been a very uh, vocal proponent of the voice, uh, was invited to speak at this year's conference uh, and had agreed to speak at this year's conference and, and was advertised as a speaker and unfortunately for reasons that we don't need to get into now, um, withdrew from the conference at um, fairly short notice. And uh, and so when that happened, I uh, made, uh, I think, great effort to contact other yes advocates, proponents of the, ref of the referendum proposal to establish a voice in the constitution, uh, a range um, from uh, academics to politicians and lawyers. And um, I spoke to at least one or two dozen yes uh, people about that um, and made the point that I wanted it to be a venue or a forum in which both sides were presented. And unfortunately, I had great difficulties. And I know that I haven't been the only one. I know my colleague Tom Switzer has had similar experience uh, where the Centre for Independent Studies had facilitated debate on the referendum some months ago and had a very successful debate in Sydney with two speakers from both the yes and no sides and was hoping to do the same uh, more recently in some other states and found that people on the yes side simply were not willing to turn up to debate. Um, if that is, and I have no insight into this, but if that is, as it, it might appear to some to be, a coordinated effort by people on the yes side not to engage in debate with the no side or with people who might have concerns about the voice proposal as it currently stands, I think that's to the detriment both of the national debate and also of the yes side because I think it's only through a rigorous but respectful public debate on issues that we have uh, the possibility to reach the best outcomes. So um, that, that was something I had tried to do, to have yes and no speakers and to have people from a, a range of different perspectives. Um, but I would have hoped that there would have been more engagement from some proponents of uh, the voice proposal. An organisation that I convene, Australians for Constitutional Monarchy, has had a similar experience. ACM did not take a position on the voice, on the substance of the voice, on the basis that it was beyond our remit. A new chapter in the Constitution did not disturb the, 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 uh, the Crown in the Constitution, and we felt that it was beyond our remit, though we had uh, positions to take in relation to the process, which we objected to, and we argued that it would have been wiser to have put the question to a convention, as was done in 1999. We have, a, as I say, a, a conference in Sydney on Monday, Monday afternoon, at Parliament House. We've been trying to get somebody to speak in relation to the yes case and have been unsuccessful in that regard. But that's by the by. I do recall in the, and I'm old enough to recall, unlike you, in 1999, that the society then uh, published a, 
a booklet by uh, Sir Harry Gibbs, which didn't argue one way or the other in relation to the movement from a uh, constitutional monarchy to a republic, but it did raise all the issues which were relevant in that debate. And it was a, a booklet full of so many issues, people would really start thinking about the consequences of change, which was the whole point of this. I think you've done something similar, have you not? Well, that's right. Uh, and, and I have a copy here of uh, Sir Harry's uh, contribution to that debate published by the Society in the lead-up to the 1999 referendum. Um, it, it did strike me um, when I was going back and looking at this uh, that this uh, booklet was published in March, in fact, at the beginning of March in 1997, um, and that there were several years of debate, constructive debate, and obviously the convention process in the lead-up to that referendum. And, um, and that seems to have been something that has been a bit lacking this time around. Um, and, and I think that that has meant that a lot of Australians haven't really had an opportunity to come to an informed position on The Voice. So um, the Society had a symposium in uh, Brisbane in May uh, because we felt that there was a need to start to uh, air and discuss some of these issues uh, earlier in the, in the process rather than waiting until our conference, uh, which was held last month. And the papers presented there and there were some excellent, excellent contributions uh, to that symposium. We had uh, Gary Johns, Amanda Stoker, Warren Mundine and, uh, and Ian Callan and all contribute to that discussion. And they have been published in this booklet, which is very reminiscent of uh, Sir Harry's booklet, uh, which it doesn't exist to advocate a particular position as such, but as you mentioned before, uh, hopes to inform the public by raising their awareness of certain issues or giving them things that they might consider as they are uh, deciding how to vote in the referendum. The society uh, has always uh, been a debating society, first and foremost, one that doesn't adopt institutional positions, but one which seeks to encourage discussion and debate about important issues of constitutional significance. And that's what we hope to do with the conference and also what we've hoped to do with this resource. And uh, this booklet is available free of charge to anyone who would like a copy until copies run out. Uh, so whether you're a member of the society or not, um, whether you'd like a copy for your own use or for a family member or a colleague who might be hoping to learn more about The Voice, or whether for a library or a school, um, you can contact us and we will send you a copy at no charge. Um, because we think it, it's very important uh, that people have that resource. And uh, you can also find the same material on our website as well. Uh, so uh, that's something that we've tried to do in addition to the conference papers to help Australians have uh, a variety of perspectives to consider as they make their decision. Uh, having a, a paper at the uh, conference from former Justice Ian Callanan was really significant. Of all the judges of the High Court, he would be one of the most federalist of all the judges, going right back to the early High Court. Certainly in the modern period, he was certainly the strongest federalist 
the main, maintaining the federation as it was originally intended was very much the position he took in so many cases. What was his position in the paper which, was pub which is being published in relation to the conference itself? Well, we actually have in this uh, symposium booklet, we have two contributions from, uh, from Mr. Callanan. Uh, one uh, was a piece that he wrote in response to an opinion uh, piece written by his former colleague, uh, Kenneth Hain. Um, and that deals with a number of issues, but one I think very significantly being the issue of justiciability and whether the voice will create uh, an opportunity for issues to be litigated and taken to the High Court. And, um, and I think that um, somewhat perplexingly, um, some lawyers and even some um, former judges have tried to argue that there's very limited scope for uh, the voice to give rise to issues that would be the subject of litigation. But That's as, the meaning, is uh, it not, of justiciability, just for the purposes, for the benefit of uh, our viewers. Could you explain what justiciability yes. means? That, well, yes. So justiciability is the concept that uh, a particular issue or a decision can be taken to court to be determined by the court. So some uh, questions are non-justiciable, some issues are non-justiciable, which means that you can't ask the court to intervene. But the point that... Um, the, that for example, the advice, the advice of, uh, of ministers to the Crown, to the Governor or the Governor-General may not, uh, is not normally justiciable, is it? That's right, exactly. So um, there are certain uh, decisions or matters which are left to the executive, uh, which are non-justiciable, and that there may even be legislation that uh, stipulates expressly that those decisions are non-justiciable. Yes. And doesn't, um, uh, doesn't uh, Ian Callanan make the important point that the determination whether something is justiciable is itself justiciable? That is to say, that, that is a legal question in deciding exactly, whether, exactly whether, right. the, whether the court should exercise restraint and say, really, that's not for us. That's what they're effectively saying when they're saying it's not justiciable. That's not for us. That's a political matter which we, we don't determine. But determining that question is itself. Uh, a question for the court to make. It's uh, something we that's, sometimes that's exactly overlook. Right. And I thought he was very that's clever right. in saying that. Yes, and, and I think he quite rightly pointed out that for some of his former colleagues and for other lawyers and, and judges to, to try and argue that uh, something is non-justiciable uh, completely ignores the fact that you can bring an application um, to the court to ask it to determine whether something is justiciable. So the question of justiciability is itself justiciable. And that's yes. uh, something that he um, has, has articulated in, um, on, in one of his um, contributions uh, to the booklet. But some of these... And I think a very, yes. very salient point. But, but uh, Xavier, some of these lawyers are saying, with the greatest respect, they're predicting what a future High Court will do. And we can't say with any sense of uh, complete confidence that the High Court will do this or that. Uh, and the, the danger, what, what those in the no case are saying, is there is a danger that the High Court may do this. The others on the other side are saying, oh no, the High Court will never do this. And that is just so 
I think, uh, unrealistic because the High Court constantly, in the terms of doing it several years apart, the High Court regularly surprises one by what they do. Just that, that case in love where they decided mm. that the Commonwealth couldn't deport violent criminals on the conclusion of their sentence on the grounds that although they were not citizens of Australia, they couldn't be deported on the grounds of their Aboriginality. Well, that's right, and I'm glad you mentioned the Love case because that was the first of two things I wanted to um, raise in um, in response to, to your question. Um, the, uh, the idea that we can predict what the High Court will do is, I think, rather foolish. And history has shown repeatedly that it's very difficult to predict. And the High Court is never bound. It's never bound by its past decisions. Um, it's never bound by um, the decisions of other courts, uh, whether they be domestic or international. Um, so, you know, other than being bound by the Constitution and um, by some legislation, it has a very broad remit to make decisions. And that's why it's so important that we consider what goes into the Constitution because it's it's the key document that directs how the High Court and the other branches of government act. And, and so that's why there's a danger. So for people on the, uh, the yes side of the debate to uh, suggest that they can assure us that uh, the High Court will or won't do this or that uh, is, is simply, it, it's misleading. Uh, so the Love case is a perfect example of that. And uh, we had a paper given by Alan Myers, ACKC, who has got to be uh, one of, if not the greatest and, and most effective High Court advocates of our time uh, on uh, two important cases of, of note in recent years, the Love case and the Palmer case. And um, his uh, paper enters into some very well-informed, very uh, measured, um, but also um, very strident uh, criticism of the reasoning of some of the judges in uh, the majority uh, in those two cases. And um, I think it's very well worth uh, people going and, and reading what Alan Myers had to say about the Love case because he looks in close detail, he closely examines the decisions, decisions or the reasons of the four uh, majority judges in that case, and it was only a bare four to three majority um, in love, and he exposes, I think, some of the uh, flawed or difficult to penetrate uh, reasoning of, of those judges uh, when it comes to notions like uh, spirituality and metaphysical connections to land and things like that, which are concepts that have been foreign to our uh, legal system for, uh, you know, the entirety of its existence. They're, they're new ideas that we don't really know how to engage with uh, in terms of our law and our legal system. And the insertion of those concepts through the voice into our legal system is only going to uh, create, I think, uh, more scope for confusion. So that's the first issue I wanted to address. The second issue I wanted to address uh, was uh, the fact that we don't need to speculate or hypothesise about what might happen uh, with the voice in terms of what the judiciary might do, because we can look to 
very similar comparisons internationally. Mm. And the one that I think is most relevant is Canada. So Nicholas Aroni gave a paper at our conference as well where he touched on this, and, and it's also something that the society in some of our original research this year have explored. Uh, the idea that uh, the Canadian constitution in the way that it was amended not too long ago uh, shows us exactly what might happen with the voice. So in Canada, uh, the the um, constitution was amended and certain things were left, under certain terms were left undefined because there was an inability for the politicians to come to a consensus about what these things should mean. And it was said at that time, leave it to us, we'll have a premier's conference uh, and we will decide amongst ourselves what this all means. So it's very reminiscent of what the Prime Minister has said about The Voice. Leave it to us, leave it to the politicians. We don't need to give you all the details now. We don't need to articulate the specific limitations or the specific powers or the specific functions of The Voice. We'll just uh, ask you, the Australian public, to give us a blank cheque and then Parliament will go away later on and we will figure it out and don't worry, you don't need to know. That's effectively what the Prime Minister has argued in relation to this voice proposal, is that you don't need the detail now. He said, you know, look at the Karma Langton report, but he's never committed to actually implementing the recommendations of that report. So who knows if that will look anything like uh, what he might do if the voice is successful. But he, what he has said is give us a blank cheque. Well, he that's has, what the politicians in, yes, he has, that, that's uh, what the politicians in Canada did. He has mm. emphasised the Karma Langton report, but... Uh, when, when he was challenged over whether the Uluru statement is, uh, is one page or 28 or more pages, he, he indicated that he hadn't read it and he asked, why should I, on Melbourne Radio, which is all very surprising. Uh, that, that is fascinating, this, this link with what happened in Canada. And obviously Mr Roney's paper is very important for people to read to understand that important aspect, if they want to understand that. The, there was another speech I noticed, another address from one of the wittiest of King's councils in Australia. That's Neil Brown, who writes for Spectator. What was his speech like? Well, um, uh, regrettably, um, Neil Brown uh, was on the program um, and um, we, we did have him step in uh, to, to fill the spot left by Gabrielle Appleby, but um, regrettably he um, fell un unwell um, oh dear. before the conference. So um, we, we weren't able to, um, to, uh, to hear uh, his contribution. But uh, what I can say about uh, what he would have said um, had he been there is that um, uh, regular readers of The Spectator would be quite familiar with some of the um, the issues that he's explored and some of the arguments that he's raised. So um, while um, we, we didn't have a paper from him, unfortunately, due to um, his uh, last-minute ill health, uh, I would encourage people to read his contributions on this subject in The Spectator uh, for some of his, his view. Um, but certainly I, I would um, echo, echo what you've said. Um, people should read uh, Nicholas Aroni's paper if they want to hear about Canada, because it really is a fascinating uh, journey from the politicians saying give, us, saying, give us a blank check, to the courts deciding that the Crown in Canada owes essentially a, a type of fiduciary duty, an obligation to Indigenous people, which is something which academics have argued 
the Crown in Australia, the Commonwealth Government, um, ought to owe to Aboriginal people here, which would completely change um, the way that uh, we think of and interact with uh, the, the policy area of uh, Aboriginal affairs. It would be a very fundamental and, and radical change um, with legal consequence, and the High Court um, could do it here just as uh, the court, the Supreme Court did in, in Canada, uh, when no one envisaged that that might be the case, when the politicians said, oh, leave it to us, we'll sort it out. Uh, so um, it's, it's something that people should inform themselves about because it's, it's not hypothetical, it's not theoretical. It actually happened in Canada. And we do have a line of reasoning by the High Court, do we not in the Mabo case? and WIC cases where they developed a, a theory in relation to the retention of uh, interests in the land in Australia, which was then uh, legislated by the Keating government because they had the power to do so. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, speakers at the conference was the historian Keith Winshuttle, who's written widely on this. What was the subject of his speech? Well, he gave a very interesting paper, uh, not about the voice per se, but uh, about a subject that I've been very uh, passionate about and vocal about in the last year, which was the rewriting of history. Uh, so he gave a paper about Sir Samuel Griffith, after whom our society is named, and uh, some of the efforts by uh, some academics such as Henry Reynolds to rewrite the history of uh, Australia and of people such as Sir Samuel. And he gave a very uh, well-informed, very well-researched uh, rebuke of some of that rewriting of history. And he goes into great detail in his paper about how some of the claims about history that are now being made by people such as Reynolds are based on very thin or, in some cases, no evidence whatsoever. And it's all sort of conjecture. So I think people um, will gain a lot from his paper because it's uh, his methodology is very sound and his uh, conclusions are drawn from um, quite significant research, which unfortunately uh, is becoming more and uh, more difficult for people to do, it seems, or becoming rarer. So um, the efforts by some to rewrite the history about Sir Samuel Griffith and to say that he um, was somehow uh, morally deficient for things that he may not have done. I mean, there's no allegation against Sir Samuel that he ever did anything that was objectionable. It's, it's only that um, he was a brilliant lawyer and politician and so if he'd wanted to, he could have solved some problems which he didn't solve and so therefore that's a, a moral failing on his part, apparently. Uh, yeah, but as I say, even that is all based on, uh, according to the research of Keith Winshuttle, very thin evidence at best. In uh, his book, The Breakup of Australia, Keith Winshuttle does make some very solid arguments. As an historian, he always goes back to the original sources. He doesn't, mm. he doesn't rely just on other historians, which seems to be a trend among some historians, not to go back, but to just rely on what has been said by others. And he, for example, in that book, denies the existence of anything that could be called a frontier war. He has a chapter on that and he does, I agree with you, he does defend Sir Samuel Griffith from the attacks which have been made on him. But the, the argument that there was in fact no 
nothing that could ever be called a frontier war is, uh, seems to contradict what is the received uh, wisdom these days. Well, that's right. And I think the important thing for us today to, uh, to consider is that um, we have no way of knowing what happened unless we go to the original source material. So um, in his paper, Keith Winshuttle talks about uh, how um, some historians or authors today have speculated or uh, made assumptions, estimated, drawn conclusions based on secondary material or conversations between themselves, um, which don't go back to the source material. And and as you say, Keith Winshuttle has taken a a great effort to go back to the original material, to primary source evidence. So um, I, I think that's something which is lacking in some of these discussions is that reference back to primary sources. And, you know, I think uh, in the absence of that, it's very difficult to say with any certainty what did or didn't happen. And I think when we exaggerate uh, claims about the past, uh, we do no one any justice. You know, if things in the past have occurred that were wrong, uh, then we need to have a frank and honest conversation about those things. But we can't do that if uh, all of that is getting lost in exaggerated claims about frontier wars or you know, other uh, events that um, we have you know, unclear evidence about. So I think Keith Winshuttle's contribution is important for that reason because it goes back to primary source material. You also had a speaker, did you not, on another subject, and that was the expropriation of the Calvary Hospital, a Catholic hospital in Canberra. And I think you had somebody from the, a priest from the Diocese of Canberra-Goulburn who spoke to that. Is, is that not right? That's correct. So um, although the voice was the major focus for the conference, um, it wasn't the sole focus of the conference this year because there are a number of other issues uh, that are of great significance in uh, constitutional and um, uh, legal affairs at the moment. And one of them is, as you say, the compulsory acquisition of the Calvary Hospital in Canberra. So we were um, fortunate to have Father Tony Percy from the Archdiocese uh, come and speak to us about that experience and um, to to share his insights, having been at the coalface, so to speak, there. And I think what it's highlighted for many people, uh, and I was I was interviewed by a, a um, an American um, publication about this uh, a few months ago. Uh, what it has highlighted for people is that governments in Australia have immense power to to do things like this, to disregard private property rights. That is a feature or a fact of our system of government that I think many Australians uh, who might have been influenced by things like the castle um, might not be fully aware of. Um, And what's happened in Canberra with the uh, compulsory acquisition of Calvary Hospital sets a, I think, a very um, concerning political precedent. There's no question that the ACT government has the power to do this, I think, Um, but it 
it's a question of whether it should do this and whether this is the right way in which government should exercise powers it might have to acquire property compulsorily. Because it certainly appears that this decision has been made with reference to particular political uh, value judgments about um, the the hospital's uh, practice of its uh, Catholic faith and the role for uh, the Catholic uh, system in the healthcare system, uh, which has implications not only for healthcare but also for aged care, for uh, the education system and for a variety of other um, areas of social welfare um, in our society. And I think that this is a major issue that has significant implications. And uh, it wasn't that it wasn't a good hospital. I think it's universally agreed that the Calvary Hospital is probably the best hospital in Canberra, far better than the one controlled by the government. There's another aspect, the territory government, which was imposed on the territory against the wishes of the territory by the Hawke government. There were two referendums in the territory, both of which they rejected the concept of self-government. The Hawke government still went ahead with this. The territory government is a government subordinate to the federal government. The federal government is effectively responsible for this. Was this point discussed that the responsibility of the federal government in relation to these actions of the uh, territory government and uh, the failure of the federal government to take any position in relation to this, but just treating it as a matter purely for a subordinate territory? Well, you're quite right. There certainly is the potential uh, for the Commonwealth to step in in a situation like this. And so I think many people rightly would be thinking, why didn't the Commonwealth step in? Because there seems to be uh, such an, a thin or insufficient justification for this takeover. And it's happened in such a, a manner which has been, I think, um, lacking. The, the time frames were very rapid. There is still uncertainty. It, it was about rushed through the Assembly, wasn't it? Well, yes, yes. There's well, no I proper think, debate. I think that's right. I think, I think that anyone looking at this um, fairly, objectively, would say it was a very, very quick process and there were many questions, even as the legislation was being enacted, uh, that um, were, were still quite unclear. I, I know the last time um, I spoke with um, Father Tony Percy, uh, there were still questions uh, on the hospital side about um, how the takeover was going to work from a practical standpoint, um, aspects about how much uh, compensation and uh, practical matters of that nature that were still unresolved. And this was after the legislation had been, had been passed and enacted. Uh, so I think that is a, a separate issue about the process, uh, which is still quite important. Uh, but putting the process, which is a problem, to one side, I do think uh, there is also a more substantive question here about whether it's appropriate, even though government might have the power to do this, whether this is an appropriate application of the power that, um, that people are willing to accept as a political matter. Uh, because as I say, I think if you were to, to take the Catholic um, system out of uh, health or schools or aged care, 
um, or social welfare, it would have immense consequences, negative consequences for Australian society. I mean, uh, you know, one in three students are educated in the Catholic um, education system. If government decides, well, we're going to compulsorily acquire all the Catholic schools because we don't agree with uh, their practice of their Catholic faith uh, or how their Catholic faith and uh, those Catholic virtues and values uh, influence their provision of, of education services, that would be catastrophic uh, in terms of our uh, nation's ability to educate young people. And, and likewise with, with the health system. If, uh, as a Victorian, if you were to say, if the, if the Victorian government were to say, we don't agree with St Vincent's uh, for similar reasons that the, the ACT government seems to have, have had for wanting to acquire uh, Calvary, uh, then that would put immense pressure on the Victorian health system. And it would be the same in every state. One of the scenes in newsreels which really made me just run cold, I felt cold when I saw it, was the taking down of the cross from the hospital. And that reminded me of what happened in other countries uh, where, where this was uh, an indication of uh, some terrible acts of the government. I'm not suggesting that the Territory Act is going to do this, but they do seem to be a government which is taking measures which will surprise the rest of the country, for example, in relation to drugs and other matters. Uh, I, th th there seem to me to be serious, serious defects in the constitution of the government of the territory in that the usual checks and balances on the government uh, that you would expect in a Westminster-style system don't seem to exist in the Constitution. But that is, that of course is another matter probably not touched on by the society. Uh, just to remind us, uh, the, remind the viewers, what is the mission of the Samuel Griffith Society? Well, the society's uh, mission, it puts succinctly, is to uphold and defend the Australian Constitution or the Commonwealth Constitution. Uh, and, and so we do that by both promoting awareness and discussion of the Constitution and its virtues and also of what it stands for. So things like the rule of law, but also that fundamental policy of the Constitution, which is federalism, which is the idea that power should be, uh, should be spread or diffuse. Uh, it shouldn't be concentrated uh, in a single level of government or a single entity in Canberra that uh, governs the country by, you know, by dictat, um, but that decisions should be made uh, according to the principle of subsidiarity that is closer to uh, the people that are ultimately impacted by the decisions. So the society, uh, although it um, doesn't tend to adopt institutional positions on particular policy or political matters, um, it exists fundamentally to promote those values uh, and principles that the Constitution stands for, to raise awareness, uh, which this whole referendum debate, although it's been unfortunate for many reasons, um, at least has helped to do. I think people are thinking and talking about the Constitution in a way that they don't generally have reason to do. Uh, so 
that's a big part of it, uh, to promote awareness of the Constitution and also to uh, support research uh, into the Constitution, its virtues and our constitutional arrangements. Uh, one of your speakers was a, uh, a great member of the society. I've heard him before and he is very effective. That's a, a King's Counsel, Stuart Wood. What was his uh, contribution? Well, uh, Stuart Wood and uh, another barrister uh, from Victoria, Paul Jeffries, um, both spoke as part of a, a session on referendums. And so uh, their papers, I suppose, uh, add to the broader picture around the voice. They didn't specifically address the voice itself as a proposal, but they both explored various aspects of the referendum process and, and previous referendums. So Stuart Wood's um, paper uh, addressed the 1967 referendum and highlighted five uh, what you could describe as myths or misconceptions that have emerged around the 1967 referendum. And, uh, what, and, and so he laid out in uh, quite an extensive and uh, comprehensively researched paper uh, what the 1967 did and did not do. And um, it was uh, quite fascinating. Uh, he, um, in his paper, took up some statements that were made by um, Minister Burney about the 1967 referendum. Um, claims like uh, that Aboriginal people didn't have the right to vote before 1967, claims that Aboriginal people weren't counted as people before 1967. And he very um, calmly but factually uh, refutes some of those very emotive um, but ultimately baseless claims uh, going back to the, the evidence and the legislation um, about those issues. So I think that was... Um, for, for everyone quite informed, I think um, he even um, discovered things in conducting that research, which he wasn't aware of, um, and things that I think now um, in the way that people uh, talk about the 1967 referendum uh, are just taken as given that uh, simply have no rational basis, simply not the case. Yes, uh, I, one of the few occasions the Australians published a letter from me was after the second distinguished academic published a paper in The Australian uh, which completely misrepresented the situation concerning the right of Aboriginal people to vote, which was uh, absolute in four states, four of states that formed the Federation, uh, and uh, which allowed two, uh, two states before Federation allow, or very early allowed women to vote before uh, before white women could vote in New South Wales, Victoria, or certainly in Europe or the United States. Uh, but these, these myths that he no doubt addressed in his speech are repeated from time to time in the letters pages of eminent newspapers where one would hope that the editors were aware that these were wrong and should probably not be published. Uh, just uh, in our last few moments, what, is, what are the future plans of the society? Well, the society is not going to stop speaking about the con constitution um, once the referendum is over. Uh, we are already well underway in terms of planning our next conference, uh, which will be held in May of next year on the Gold Coast. So our conference is held annually and rotates around the country. 
and information about that conference and the program uh, can be found on our website, samuelgriffith.org, and uh, and more information will be released in the coming uh, weeks and months. So we're very much looking forward to that. Uh, we continue to host events all across the country. So um, for anyone who is interested in the Constitution or in constitutional or legal issues, I would encourage them to uh, join the Society or to find out more about the Society via our website or by contacting us. And um, we hope that um, in the final few weeks of the referendum that the papers that we have been able to publish, including the booklet that, as I said before, is available to anyone who might like to uh, have a copy free of charge. Um, we hope that those resources will help Australians to make an informed decision at the ballot box on the 14th of October. So uh, anybody interested in obtaining the printed versions of those papers, or that those two particular, two booklets that you have, uh, should uh, look at uh, the site and uh, find out how to contact you and get in touch with you and you will send them those papers. Is that right? Yes, that well, that's they very certainly good. Can, can do that and uh, we look forward to uh, hearing from them. Well, once again, Xavier Moffat, you've been very good to us in explaining the conference and the program of uh, the society, which is so significant in Australia. It's the only federalist society we have in the country and plays a significant role because the Federation is the very basis of our Australian constitution. Thank you so much. Thank you, as always, for having me, Professor Flint. It's been uh, wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. This is ADH-TV. The program is Save the Nation, produced by Charlie Noble. I'm David Flint, and until next time, thank you.